everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book two of The Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three, The Sailor. Let's start the show. Good to be with you again, Jay. Same here, Sean. Always a good time. Yes, indeed. I'm excited to start our second volume of the Dark Tower series, and we get right into the action, don't we? I'll give my little preview. In this section, Roland awakens on a beach seven hours after we left him in The Gunslinger, and he has to fight off a lobstrosity. But at what cost? Before he starts his drawing of the three. Before we get into the details, I just want to do a little bit of background on the book um, in general, and then maybe our approach to it too, Jay, because unlike The Gunslinger, which was broken up into nice, discrete five chapters, all of approximately the same length, and it was very easy to do a podcast on each chapter. That's super convenient. Very convenient as podcasters, yes. Uh, This book is done a little bit differently, and you'll notice that for this first podcast, we're only doing about 20-some pages. Um, And then next podcast, we'll be doing about 125 pages because we'll be doing all of the prisoner section, which is quite a long section. But um, one of the reasons we're doing that is I think that this book is a little bit faster paced and um, covers a lot of plot details that we should be able to get through quickly while still devoting the amount of time we want to to the characters and themes like we always do. Yes, and I challenge you, uh, listeners, to even try to put the book down once you start reading the prisoner section, because it's that much fun. Agreed. Um, And that's one of the things we'll talk about today, is how this book has a little bit more of the Stephen King voice to it, I think. And it does seem more like a Stephen King book when you think of Stephen King books than maybe The Gunslinger did. Absolutely. Great. So I wanted to talk about the fact that this book um, was published in May of 1987. And if you remember, The Gunslinger came out in 1982. So there's a five-year gap between these books. Um, and that was mm-hmm. actually the the small edition that would have been published by Grand Press before it was done in a trade paperback. And it came out at a time that I like to think of as peak Stephen King. Um Part of the reason is, is that this was probably when I started to discover Stephen King, but also just sort of, I think this was the plethora of books that were coming out. So just to give you guys an idea of where this falls in King's uh, lineage of books, um, in 1985 is when King was outed as Richard Bachman. And um, shortly thereafter, the Bachman books came out. So that was four short novels that he had published in the late 70s and early 80s under a pseudonym. That yeah, was came, a great collection. That all, yeah, it was a great collection. They all came out in a um, in a trade paperback shortly thereafter. In 1986, it came out, um, and I think King got a lot of attention for that for having a very very short title in a very very big book. It was what something like a thousand pages, Jay. Yeah, it was like 1,100 pages in the trade paperback, or I'm sorry, the mass market paperback. I remember at the time there was a lot of articles like actually weighing the book and saying, this is how much this book weighs and this is how many words are in it. And Yeah, it's easier to measure by weight than by word count. So that came out in 86. 
the drawing of the three came out, as I said, in May of 87. In 1987 alone, Jay, this is Stephen King's output. Eyes of the Dragon, Misery, Tommyknockers, and The Drawing of the Three. That's four books in one year, coming off of a year before when he had an 1,100-page book. Yeah. Um, Peak King? Peak as in number of of books published. And I I guess the other reason I think of it as sort of Peak King is the mid-80s were a lot of movies at the same time as this. Um, lots of adaptations. Uh, I didn't yep. look up to see exactly which ones came around around this time, but mid eighties, I'm thinking creep show running man was right around this time. That was shortly after the Bachman books came out. It was maximum overdrive at this, this yeah, period. I think it's right around the, this yeah. period too. So Jay, what do you attribute uh, King's prolific writing to during this time period? And do you think it had any effect on this book? Or is that a little um, bit of a spoiler of what we're getting into in the next chapter? Uh, perhaps his <laughs> uh, drug abuse uh, at the time? Could be. I think he has suggested that there are some books he does not remember writing at all. Yeah, like Tommyknockers. <laughs> we've Just all like, forgotten it. We've all forgotten it. <laughs> Good times indeed. Well, whatever the case, I just wanted to point out that... Um, not only was he prolific at this time, but I think you can tell even from this early chapter, even though it's a few short pages, but definitely when we get into the rest of the book, this sounds more like King's voice that we think of when we think of Stephen King writing. And I think maybe yeah. some of our listeners who have reached out to you and I off the air have said that that first book has been difficult in some places for them to mm-hmm. read or to get there, even folks who have been Stephen King fans in the past. And I'm guessing that they'll have an easier time with this book as it is a lot more plot driven and a lot more character driven and um, just more happening and more of interest, I think, to the reader. Yeah. In the the Bev Vincent book, The Road to the Dark Tower, she even says um, that a lot of people are advised by friends to start with book two and then go back to book one and read it like a flashback. Mm. And in that, in that way, it works almost as well as the main bulk of book four, which is almost all flashback. So if you just pretend book one is a flashback from book two, it, I guess it works fine. That's not the order I read them in, and I really liked the first book. So I, I don't think I would push somebody to skip book one, but if they're really having trouble getting through book one and you just want to kind of get into some meaty action and then you're curious about the character of roland jump back into book one later uh, i wouldn't hold it against you i on the other hand would be a book snob and say hey if you can't if you can't make it through book one you haven't earned your stripes go back and read some dr seuss oh man (laughs) i wouldn't actually say that but give it a try i do think it's worth it i think it i would look down on you i'd judge you on the inside Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. 
So Jay, I don't know what format you're reading this go around, but I am reading the trade paperback of the drawing of the three, and it has illustrations by Phil Hale. So a little bit of a different artist than in the first book. Um, more illustrations as well than in the in the first book. I think there's only one per chapter in that one, and there's much more in this one, um, maybe close to 10. The other thing I wanted to point out is this edition did not have massive changes like the Gunslinger itself did between its first publication and sort of King's re-release in 2003 of the Gunslinger. Um, there is one sort of major change, and that's the addition of a subtitle right after the title page. And in this book, it is Renewal. And in the first book, it was Resumption after it was republished. But I think other than that, there are no changes. Am I correct in saying that? I am pretty sure that that is correct. I'm rereading the book this time with my hardcover that came out at the same time as the revised edition of book one. Basically, King released all seven books almost simultaneously. So I decided I'm buying uh, five, six, and seven in hardcover. I might as well buy. You know, one through four to go to balance out my collection. And uh, so th this is actually my first time reading this physical book and this oh. edition of the book. But uh, as you said, there, there are no changes to the content except that. So it's a little bit like, um, I guess it's a little bit like the Star Wars movies. The first, when Star <laughs> Wars first came out, it was just Star Wars. And now it's a new hope. So it's very similar to that. All right. Well, let's get into the argument section, Jay. So this is um, two pages written by Stephen King directly to us, the constant reader, mm -hmm. um, that lays out not only what happened to some extent in The Gunslinger, but also starts to tease at what further awaits Roland on his journey. Anything stick out to you in this section? Well, one thing that stood out was a possible inconsistency, or at least something, at least enough to confuse me a bit. Um, in the argument, King recounts some of the events in The Gunslinger, and he says that Martin, who seduced Roland's mother, was a, quote, much more powerful sorcerer than Walter, unquote. But didn't the man in black at the end of The Gunslinger say that he was both Walter and Martin? So which is it? Or is this just the is this the cocaine talking? I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if it's, hey, I went back and made some changes in book one, but book two is fine enough. I didn't want to touch it come 2003. So maybe I left some inconsistencies there. What do you yeah, think? I think it's more about the latter, um, that uh, he changed book one so much in, or in so many places that he didn't realize that it, there was actually there was, a cascade effect that he didn't follow through <laughs> with the other books. Yeah. I also like, and this is early on, when King says, who is Roland? What was his world like before it moved on? What is the tower and why does he pursue it? We have only fragmentary answers. <laughs> even even our author doesn't know and maybe we'll find <laughs> out someday. Who knows? But uh, I, I like how he set us up to like, hey, you probably have a lot of questions after reading that first book. I understand. I have those questions too. And really, yeah. you know, I think we've talked before about how King does not outline his stuff and really is just seeing where it goes. So he, he was fairly consistent in knowing that there was going to be 
six or seven books and he had some idea of how they're going to be laid out, but I don't think he knew all the details or even all the answers. Speaking of questions that King leaves us with, um, a little further on in the argument section, he says that the gunslinger's choice to let Jake fall was the second most agonizing choice of his life, which leads me to my question. If that was his second most agonizing choice, what was his first most agonizing choice? Good question. Does King not know? Or do we just not know because King's figured this out already and he's, he's foreshadowing a little bit, even in his argument? You know, what's going on here? And in the revised version, I mean, there's hints of something bad that had happened before. And he's mentioned his girl, Susan Delgado. So maybe it's related to her. But again, we have no idea. Yeah. It's weird that that was the question that you asked yourself after reading that, because my question was, what's his third most agonizing choice? <laughs> I'm afraid we'll never find that out. <laughs> Maybe it could be will. a distant third. <laughs> a distant third. I, I think what's interesting for me in this section is what King chooses to recap from the first book and what he doesn't choose to recap. I think really that's, you know, if he's laying out this as sort of like, hey, here's what you need to know to get started. You know, we spent, you and I, both on the podcast and off the podcast, hours talking about his vision. Right. Right. And is it even mentioned in here at all? I don't think so, right? Like, no. And you would think that that would be sort of important. Like, hey, Roland had this really trippy view of the entire universe and his place in it and what the Dark Tower means. And now we just sort of get like, hey, he's on his way to the Dark Tower and we don't know what exactly that means. But um, so I thought that that was interesting. Um. He does make a point of having this romanticized view of the American West, he calls it, and what pieces of our world have crossed over into his world, but nothing mm-hmm. more than that. Yeah, I mean, King could have made this this argument section longer, could have made it shorter. He definitely could have changed details, but the fact that he chose these things to refresh our memories and whet our appetite for what comes next in the book think it it tells us something but it's it still leaves me sort of wondering you know why does he think these things are important enough to to even write this argument i love how he writes these types of um prologues and arguments and afterwards and stuff that it's it's a way to connect directly to him as an artist um it's almost like he maybe he didn't even reread book one before <laughs> writing this argument. He's just like, well, what do I remember from what five do, years ago? You in know? my cocaine-induced haze. <laughs> I know there was this gunslinger dude, and he was on a beach, and that's it. Let's go. And it's seven hours later. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but I'm with you. I do like, I like when King seems to be talking directly to me yeah. um, in pieces like this. I think I've talked to you before about how much I enjoy reading his short stories and he has a little piece ahead of his short stories that tells you a little bit about how he wrote them or what he was thinking at the time or where it was mm-hmm. published or what was the spark that went into that story or rereading it now, what it means. Uh, those were always some of my favorite things about those short story collections. And it's nice to see that that's here as well. And it helps to ground us. And you know, there was six years between these books. There might be people who are like, I don't remember exactly what happened. Okay, gunslinger, dead kid, tarot cards. Yep, let's go. Let's hit the road. Let's make some things happen here. (laughs) And luckily for us, things happen really quickly, I think. Yeah, almost a little too quickly. (laughs) Yeah, so um, we get into the next section, which is called Prologue the Sailor. 
And as King promised, uh, the gunslinger's on a beach, and there's water lapping up against him that he's incorporated into a dream he has about how he thinks he is the boy Jake, and he is the one drowning, not Jake. Um, and then he wakes up from his dream and realizes, oh, crap, it's yeah. really water. There's waves on me. Tides come in. And that's nothing compared to the creature that's <laughs> a few feet away. So this is what I think you and I were saying about part of the King voice, right? Like we get in lesser hands what could have been just a simple, hey, there's a monster on the beach and King seems to imbue it with its own personality. Did a chick? Dumb a chum? Mm -hmm. Dad a chum? Dead a chick? Like this whole, hey, it's got this odd manner of noise making to it and it looks really weird, like a lobster and maybe a scorpion, but without the tail. And when it hears the ocean, it gets into what Roland calls the honor guard as it lifts up its crabs, like the way Cork taught like him a, how to fight. Yeah, like a boxer stance. Yeah. And so what, what, what could have been in lesser hands, just a typical, hey, there's a monster coming out and it's going to attack the gunslinger. We get this, hey, these are sort of cool, interesting creatures and they've got their own unique personality to them yeah and by making them do this dot chock type sound that's that is so close to human speech it's almost like he's forcing some personification on these creatures that are deadly and frightening and scary looking and truly a threat to roland but we're still kind of like is it thinking or is it just you know making mouth sounds because that's what it does when it's not in the water or something like that but it gives you a chance to put yourself almost in the the place of that creature and it it brings that creature so much more to life and i and i might argue almost the opposite that well not that it doesn't bring it to life but that it makes it a little less scary at first yeah like, it looks weird but hey look it's sort of talking in this weird alien way and it's sort of you know, it, asks, it might it be something like it's, it's questioning, right? Yeah, like, what's going question. on? It's curious. And you're like, oh, maybe this isn't so bad. But um, we learned fairly quickly that this isn't a very good creature at all. No. Um, and Roland, I think, also doesn't fear the creature as much as he potentially should, right? He's much more right. concerned about his guns at first. Like King in the first page of the section says, you know, he wasn't worried about his freezing balls. Or the horror to his right, he thought only of the guns, right? Are my shells wet? Because that's going to be trouble if, if it is. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's focused on the wrong thing here. Like, like Roland is absentmindedly taking an inventory of his surroundings and the conditions of those surroundings. Like, hmm, water, cold, freezing balls, really scary looking lobster thing a few feet away. What's my priority here? Ah, yeah. wet guns. Wet guns, you know, get out like, of the water. Not, not wait a second, there's a really scary lobster thing that I don't even know what it is. Like, I have seen some amazing things in my days, but I have never heard of this thing. It's weird. So the one thing I wanted to mention was I sort of pictured Gilead, you know, he's gone through the desert and I, I pictured Gilead as this little castle that might be in a greenish area, but that's sort of, you know, if we're thinking American West, I sort of assumed it was on the plains maybe somewhere, right? And that then he went to the desert off to the west and he eventually wakes it to the sea. How the hell does Roland have seen a lobster before? Like, yeah. I just don't picture lobsters in Gilead or in his past, but he certainly has because that's his first thing he calls it. And then it gets saddled with the name Lobstrosity, which is just 
awesome. Yeah, it's, I think, one of King's finest word inventions. <laughs> and it seems so obvious sort of after the fact, but it's like, no, I mean, you had to think of that and yep. ever since. And if you just Google Lobstrosity, you don't get spell check errors. You, don't get, you just get thousands of results from fans and fan art and T-shirts and sculptures and tattoos. Like, everybody loves this thing. Everybody but Roland, so... Yeah. Roland misjudges sort of the the lobstrosity, how quick it moves, and before he knows it, he's down two fingers. And then shortly thereafter, it takes a swipe out his toe and a chunk of his leg, um, and he quickly realizes, oh, crap, I'm, I'm screwed. Yeah. Jay, I have a feeling you have a reaction to this. Yeah, um, I have been kind of angry at King for this since the first time I read this all, all those years ago. Uh, I, I really resent him for, for maiming Roland. I kind of have my own uh, phobias about uh, losing body parts and things like that. And um, just to have a gunslinger who his entire existence and the, the mythos that his character is built upon revolve around these guns and to basically destroy one of his hands so that he can't use a gun anymore. Um, was just so fundamental of a of an attack against his own character that I I was really upset by it and I'm still upset like even now rereading <laughs> it for this is my fourth or fifth time through this book I'm like damn you king why did you do that you could have messed up Roland in so many other ways or made them temporary or something but no it's uh, you had to go for the chopping off half of his hand and one of his toes and now he can't use a gun with that hand and. I understand that there's some literary reason for this, or, or at least dramatic reason for this, to make Roland less than perfect or less than ideal. But I, I still think King could have found a way to do that that didn't involve cutting off body parts, which is probably just <laughs> my own personal issue that I'm, I still haven't worked out. It just gets to me that that's what happens to him. Um, I wonder why King has diminished the protagonist of our story so severely. I mean, is this kind of like a, his blood price for allowing Jake to fall? Is mm. Or is this simply dramatic effect to put a challenge before our hero? I lean towards the latter. I think that, you know, we'll see in the rest of the story where where this leads. But I think for the immediate piece, it's adding stakes to the story, right? I mean, King's already told us that we're going to have seven or eight books in the series. And I'm going to assume that Roland's going to be in all of them. So I know he's not going to die. So in some way, he's got plot armor, um, mm -hmm. assuming that he's going to make it through, which we do because it's his quest and it's a heroic quest and da-da-da-da-da. Um, so it adds stakes right away that, hey, this even though you think this guy's invincible, he's not. And then furthermore, you know, it really does put an obstacle in his way. You know, in The Gunslinger, anytime there was sort of an obstacle things sort of worked out right oh we don't have food but uh yeah we'll make it through anyways i know we'll have enough to get to the yeah. oh we're we're not gonna have water ah but we'll make it and really the only horrible thing that happened was jake and all the whole time roland knew jake was gonna die so i think in some ways this is a way of leveling down roland so that he's not this impervious superman you know he's got his own piece of kryptonite here i mean what better obstacle to put in a gunslinger's way than to take away his gun um in two ways right so we think 
his bullets may potentially be wet and therefore useless as well as mm-hmm. hey your main hand for shooting is useless as well as he instinctively goes to draw the gun and he drops it right away because he doesn't have the fingers to do it anymore so i am sad for roland that he doesn't have his two fingers and a big toe but on the other hand from a story perspective i think it's sort of cool that this invincible man has been brought down some yeah i suppose and i know this isn't a comic book but like you use the kryptonite example if you just sort of, you know, jammed a splinter of kryptonite into Superman's flesh and it basically made him equal to a normal person and he just couldn't ever change that about himself, then you've just made Superman not Superman anymore. And therefore, he's no longer a superhero and his story is never the same from that point forward. Right. But I think with Superman, if we're going to go into a comic book podcast i never liked superman and one of the reasons was he was so powerful that you never got a sense of threat with him you know my favorite was spider-man because spider-man would break his arm or his aunt may would be after him and the bad guys would beat him and that's what made it interesting was that hey spider-man's got all these powers but at heart he's sort of a lovable loser and he's always he doesn't always get the 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 good end of the deal or in superman is you know he is invulnerable and it really became a challenge i think for writers to write stories that would make it a challenge for superman and how would they do that and they would always have to be like oh well it just so happens that we got kryptonite in him or it just so happens that you know and it 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 became a workaround for me so i think with roland i think this is a good way for king to say hey this guy still is a formidable figure um and he still is able to do things i mean this lobstrosity that takes off his fingers he finds a way to kill it yeah brutally with rock right so he's able to to overcome that he just has to do it in a different way which i think adds to the character in some way for me that's fair and and roland is not like superman in that he is invulnerable he is still a, a human being full of frailties and he could break his arm he could twist his ankle he could do all sorts of things that would just stop his quest in its tracks so i guess i just don't like this particular way of putting a <laughs> challenge before him In The Gunslinger, every time he faced a true challenge, King found ways to build something into the story that made the guns less important or completely irrelevant, like going against the oracle in the mountains. Like now he's dealing with a potential enemy or a physical threat that has no physicality, so he can't shoot it. And the man in black is apparently either able to dodge or deflect every shot. So the things that he really needs his guns against, the guns don't do anything to. It's only in like when he shoots up tall that we see what the guns really do. I don't know. I guess I'll just have to accept the fact that Roland has a few fewer uh, digits and move on with the story just like he will. Well, we'll give him a high three from now on and uh, yeah, go on from there. <laughs> oh, it's too soon. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> Book came out 30 years ago. It's not too soon. <laughs> All right. So Roland is able to eventually fight off this lobstrosity after he loses his fingers, right? He takes the rock smashes it and smashes it and smashes it until he finally sees his fingers in the in the guts of the smash creature oh that was a little bit uh that was a little bit rough that section um yeah and i love i love the line when when king describes this this is when he's he's still fighting it the ghosts of talented and long-trained fingers which were already decomposing in the digestive juices of that thing's guts scream that they were still there that they were burning I see serious problems ahead, the gunslinger thought remotely. 
Yes. I'll say it in an understatement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that whole phantom limb piece, he gets it right away and he can still feel the pain even though it's not there. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that in that moment, Roland was still able to operate at a level of detachment that allowed him to have this thought while fighting for his life. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's simultaneously fighting off and attacking and ultimately destroying the lobstrosity. But he's also like, yeah, some serious problems ahead. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so he's like calculating his odds of survival beyond this moment. Yeah, and so here's here's the line where he finds it. He kept, you know, he had um he had taken the rock and was he had killed it, and then he started stomping on it with his left boot, smashing its shell, squeezing its pale guts out onto dark gray sand. It was dead, and I'll let you do the line because I know you want to mention that in a little bit. But he kept on until he saw the tip of one of his own fingers in the dead thing's sour mash, saw the white dust beneath the nail from the Golgotha where he and the man in black had held their long palaver. And then he looked aside and vomited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is almost like the, uh, before the credit scene in a movie, right? You just jump right into the action and get to it. And it just, I loved it. Yeah. So back to the line that you wanted to talk about, Jay. What really stood out for me was he had never in all his long, strange time been so fundamentally hurt and it had all been so unexpected. And it really is a surprise like now that i think about it that roland is as whole as he is at this point in his life mm. he's lived this long strange time getting into battles and gunfights and surviving a world that has moved on uh it's pretty amazing that he still has every body part <laughs> you know he has both of his eyes and all of his teeth apparently and you know he doesn't have scars crisscrossing his face and his you know and <laughs> And it took until now to lose a couple fingers. Like, it's pretty remarkable. So, yeah. To be fair, he spent 10 of those years in an instant with uh, the man in black, right? Where he just woke up and he was 10 years older. So, true. <laughs> but yes, there was at least 12 years of chasing the man in black, as far as we can tell, right? Right. And then all the things that he did in his life up, you know, before his, his chase uh, began, we got hints of that in the gunslinger of he clearly. He got the crap beaten out of him all the time by court when he was training to be a gunslinger. And then he had some adventures between then and now. And so I have to imagine that there were a few close calls when he he almost died or almost (laughs) had an arm ripped off or who knows what. And um, and maybe when he was chasing down that knot man or whenever that happened. True that. Yes, indeed. So I guess it's just a matter of time before. A lobstrosity comes along and <laughs> snips off a couple fingers. Yeah, indeed. So this section has ended with Roland in bad shape, right? He can sort of, ban- he puts some tobacco on his uh, stumps to help stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wonders, hey, uh, I'm sweating, but it's cold. Am I getting an infection? I can't use my gun anymore. Uh, are there more of these lobstrosities out there? And I still haven't done anything about the drawing of the three. Where, what on earth is going to happen to me? And he, it ends with he wondering if the thing had some poison in its bite, which might already be working its way into him. Wondering if morning would ever come. So we're left on a little down note, Empire Strikes Back style, right? Like, uh oh. Yeah, but it's the first chapter. Of the <laughs> yeah, book. I know our hero's in trouble early. How's this going to play out? <laughs> I will uh, yeah. tell you that when I started reading this a few weeks ago, I immediately went to the next page to start reading the next section because mm. I desperately wanted to find out what happened. I have 
very little recollection of this book from when I read it, you know, mm. 25 years ago. So um, I was very excited to get back into it. Yeah, um, I pretty much did the same thing. This section of the book was so brief and something so important happened to Roland that I kind of just want to know, how does he get out of this? You know, does, do, does he wake up in a back to tank in the next chapter with, uh, you know, a droid building his new fingers? <laughs> One could only hope, right? <laughs> yes. Anything else you want to add in this chapter, Jay, before we uh, get into the next section, which will be The Prisoner? Um, we got some fan art from one of our listeners, Sonia. Oh, yeah, that's right. She did a drawing of Roland that she titled Roland DeShane, and um, we'll put a link to it somehow or another in our, our show notes so that you guys can get a look at this picture. I'll probably post it on our Facebook page as well. It's a really awesome drawing that she did. No, but it was a it was an excellent piece. Yeah. Um I'm I'm excited to see, you know, we talked a little bit about how we've got a different illustrator for this and this book I think lends itself to a lot more illustrations and um you know, you mentioned earlier about how if you start to google about lobstrosities, you see a lot of cool art and designs yeah. and tattoos. I think the Dark Tower brings out some great art and Sonia's is definitely one of those. Mm -hmm, definitely. So thanks, Sonia, for sending that in. Yeah. You'll remember Sonia presented one of our questions last week as well. So uh, there's definitely ways to get yourself named on this podcast. Reviews, art, bribes. Five-star ratings on five iTunes. Five-star ratings, yeah. All right, great. Well, uh, hopefully you guys are finding this book as exciting as jay and i are um that's going to be it for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came as always thanks for the conversation jay thank you links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes you can email us at two guys dark tower at gmail.com be sure to send your emails thoughts comments there you can also find us at facebook at facebook.com slash two guys dark tower that too is a number and our twitter handle is at two guys dark tower and if you like the show please rate us on itunes that helps other people find and discover our show and bring them into our conversation um, as we noted earlier we're going to be covering the prisoner section on our next episode that section is about 125 pages long so give yourself enough time to read that before we are back in two weeks for jay russo i'm sean mcgurr thanks for listening